Today's passage is from chapter 12, verse 14, to chapter 13, verse 14. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 14. Here for the third time I am ready to come to you, and I will not be a burden. For I seek not what is yours, but you. For children are not obligated to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? But granting that I myself did not burden you, I was crafty, you say, and got the better of you by deceit. Did I take advantage of you through any of those whom I sent to you? I urged Titus to go and send a brother with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? Did we not act in the same spirit? Did we not take the same steps? Have you been thinking all along that we have been defending ourselves to you? It's in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ, and all for your upbuilding, beloved. For I fear that perhaps when I come, I may find you not as I wish, and that you may find me not as you wish. That perhaps there may be quarrelling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you, and I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality that they have practiced. This is the third time I'm coming to you. Every charge must be established by evidence of two or three witnesses. I warn those who sinned before and all the others, and I warn them now while absent. As I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them. Since you see proof that Christ is speaking in me, he is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For he was crucified in witness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him. By dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail to meet the test. I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test. But we pray to God that you may not do wrong. Not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, though we may seem to have failed. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong, your restoration is what we pray for. For this reason, I write these things while I am away from you, that when I come, I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all.
girls to recapture a bit of their youth. Uh, so a big happy 30th birthday to Lorraine. And also a big happy birthday to Pastor Ben, who also, I believe, turned 30, or at least that's what he looks like. Uh, so if you, uh, if you see him on Facebook or drop him a message, uh, or if you're one of the Rivers of Living Water members there, uh, feel free to, to sing him happy birthday a bit later. Uh, for those who haven't seen it yet, uh, please do check out uh, the recent pastor's desk from Pastor Ben. Uh, it's brilliant. It's really and highly encouraging. Uh, and if you haven't seen it as well, uh, Pastor Ben last week also gave an important announcement about COVID-19 and our church uh, and the, uh, the different restrictions that have been lifting and what's going to happen uh, in the near future with all of that. So please go and check that afterwards. For now, though, let me ask God to bless us as we turn to his word now this morning. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for this morning, uh, for your goodness and kindness to us in giving us your word. We thank you that you speak, you speak to us clearly, and we thank you for this letter in 2 Corinthians. As we turn now to the final portion of this letter, we ask again for your Spirit's help. Help me to speak clearly from this passage as I ought. Help us to receive your word by your Spirit's help and to be transformed in obedience to it. Father, we pray that our lives, as our lives conform to your Son, Jesus, we ask that you'll bless us with great joy uh, to follow you all the days of our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. After 12 chapters of some of the most intense, passionate, and tear-soaked words in the New Testament, you might be forgiven for wondering if Paul, the Apostle Paul felt like Kaylee Wilkes. Kaylee Wilkes, if you don't know her, is a member of the houseplant group in Brisbane of Facebook. And in February of this year, she made a startling discovery about one of her beloved succulent plants. She wrote, I've had this beautiful succulent for about two years now. I was so proud of this plant. It was full, beautiful coloring, just an overall perfect plant. I had it up in my kitchen window. I had a watering plan for it. If someone else tried to water my succulent, I would get so defensive because I just wanted to keep good care of it. I absolutely loved my succulent. Today, I decided it was time to transplant. I found the cutest vase that suited it perfectly. I go pull it from the original plastic container it was purchased with to learn that this plant was fake. I put so much love into this plant. I washed its leaves. I tried my hardest to keep it looking its best. It's completely plastic. How did I not know this? I pull it from the container. It's sitting on styrofoam and sand glue on the top. I feel like these last two years have been a lie. So after 12 chapters of pleading with Corinth, I wonder if Paul was beginning to feel like Kaylee that all his efforts and his hard work had been wasted. He first, when he first landed in Corinth and planted the church, there must have been great excitement, all the new converts and their rapid growth. But over the years, with probably three previous letters already written and a couple of visits under his belt, the last one of which was rather painful, I wonder if Paul was now feeling like he had been pouring all his energy and effort into a church that was basically like watering a plastic plant, that all his effort was for nothing. See, in these final verses of this letter, Paul gives us a bit of a glimpse into his mind. 
We, we see this passage broken up into four main sections in two halves, uh, each half beginning with the announcement of his plans to visit them for a third time. You see that in chapter 12, verse 14, and chapter 13, verse 1. Now, in the first half, we have two further parts. In 12, 14 to 18, Paul lays out his final defense of his ministry. In 12, 19 to 21, Paul puts on the table his many fears for the church. And in the second half of this section, chapter 13, verses 1 to 10, he gives them a final warnings, and the final few verses make up a final greeting to finish the letter. So with Paul's final words, what does he have to say? First, he tackles an accusation that, has, that he has been taking advantage of the Corinthians. So as we open up chapter 12, verse 14, we read that Paul is ready to visit them for a third time. So everything from this point onwards is about getting the church ready for his arrival. And to do that, he needs to take care of a few things in writing. First, he has to put to death an ongoing accusation against him. And the accusation that was that because Paul didn't take their money, because he didn't accept their financial support, he was somehow taking advantage of them. In chapter 12, verse 14, he says why he seeks not to be a burden. So have a look there and note in the middle of the verse, he says, for I seek not what is yours, but you. In other words, Paul is saying, I'm not after your money. I'm not after your property. I'm not after your stuff. I want you, you yourselves. I want relationship with you, not just your things. And at the end of verse 14, he lays down the principle for all of this. For children are not obligated to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. And we all kind of get that. My kids do not save up money to support Steph and I right now. No, we, their parents, save up to take care of them. This picture of Paul as their spiritual father has come up a few times already in this letter. As their spiritual father, it was Paul's duty to take care of his children. And so in verse 15, he writes, he would most gladly spend and be spent for their souls. He was happy, joyful even, to be utterly spent physically and emotionally for the church. That's Paul's level of love, of commitment to his spiritual children. That is authentic gospel ministry. And, for, and as his love for them increases, uh, he, really, he, he really has to ask, if my love for you increases, why is it that your love for me decreases? For some reason, probably under the influence of the super apostles, this level of sacrificial and loving output wasn't loving enough for Corinth. So in verse 16, Paul says that he's being accused of being crafty, of deceiving them. They were saying, he's not taking our money. He's serving us by supporting himself and pouring himself out for us. That's a sign that he's taking advantage of us and he's up to no good. That's a level of ridiculousness that's almost beyond unbelievable. But despite the fact that they are questioning Paul's integrity, he gently asks a few questions for them to consider. First, did he take advantage of them? For instance, when he sent those friends along, did he take advantage of them through them? The answer is obviously no. In verse 18, when he urged Titus to go be with them, did Titus take advantage of them? The answer was obviously no again. Did Paul and Titus not act in the same spirit? Did they not, have this, did not did they not take the same steps in ministry? 
The answer to that is obviously yes. If they wanted proof that Paul did not take advantage of them, they needed only to look to Titus. I mean, remember, think back to chapter 7, right, where Paul says that when Titus visited them, it was a refreshing visit. There was nothing in that visit to prove that Paul was trying to sneakily deceive them. Now, rather, Paul's principle was always to not burden the church. He would gladly give himself to the church for their upbuilding. Which is where he goes in verse 19, in point number two on the outline. He's, he goes into verse 19 that he's all about building them up. He opens chapter 12, verse 19 with an interesting question, though. Have a look at verse 19. Have you been thinking all along that we have been defending ourselves to you? That's an interesting question, because as you flip back through this letter, he certainly does sound defensive. But if you did read his words that way, it would actually be to miss his point. It would fail to do justice to his purpose in writing. You see, Paul wrote this letter not to win a debate. His words were grounded in his relationship with Jesus and for the purpose of building them up. Carry on again in verse 19. It is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ and all for your upbuilding, beloved. He hasn't written to impress them. He hasn't written just to slam the super apostles. He's written to please God. And because he loves Corinth, he writes for their edification. He wants them to grow in the gospel. He wants them to grow in their love for God. He wants them to grow in partnering with authentic gospel ministry. He calls them his beloved. What a wonderful way to speak about fellow Christians. What a wonderful, dear way to hold them close to your heart. Beloved. But he's also afraid. Despite all the previous visits, the previous letters, he's afraid that it might have been in vain. So in chapter 20, uh, 12, verse 20 to 21, Paul lays out three fears that he has for the Corinthians. He first, his first fear in verse 20 is that Paul and Corinth will be disappointed with each other when they next see, when they next see each other. Uh, despite the positive reception Paul and Titus had back in chapter 7, Paul knew there was still a lot of work to go. So he's afraid that when he turns up for his third visit, they will look at him and he will look at them and kind of be like, mm, not what we expected. So Paul is afraid that when he sees them next, he will find an unrepentant mess. So take a look at the list in the second half of verse 20. For I fear that perhaps when I come, you may not find me as you wish and that I may not find you, you and you may not find me as you wish that Perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. You notice that the first four items on that list, quarreling, jealousy, and anger, and hostility, have to do with their feelings towards each other. The next two items, slander and gossip, relate to what they are saying about each other. The next item on the list is conceit or pride. That is their underlying motivation and attitude. And the final item on that list is the result of all of this. Disorder, chaos, a big sinful mess. Paul is afraid that when he visits and sees all of this, it will become clear that the breakdown in their relationship is now showing itself in how fractured and broken this church had become. 
And then Paul's third and final worry in verse 21 is that he fears that when he arrives again, God would have to humble him, that he would be ashamed of this church, that it would become clear that once again he would have to confront sin in a second version of his tearful visit from before. Why? Well, there in the end of, the, of, uh, of chapter 12, he notes that there's a group within this church who had not repented of a bunch of sexual sin. It's almost like they didn't read 1 Corinthians, that letter, that probably the second letter he had given them, where he had already addressed these issues. Had they not listened to it? Remember from last week, Paul wanted to present the church as a beautiful bride to Jesus, a spotless virgin, as he says, to her husband. Their failure to look like the bride would be a stain on Paul and his ministry, and it would cause him to grieve deep, deeply. Now, with such a mess of a church, Paul gives his final warnings. He, he turns the corner in, in chapter 13, verses 1 to 10. And again, reminding them in 13, verse 1, that he intends to visit them for a third time. And when he visits them for a third time, he's anticipating a confrontation. He says in verse 1 that every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Now, this is an interesting use of Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15, because when you go back to Deuteronomy 19, that's a, a, a law in reference to the courts. If you were to uh, bring a court case against someone, you needed to have two or three witnesses to establish the justice of the situation. Now, Paul here, he's using this law, I think, metaphorically about his visits. Each time he has visited them, he's already visited them twice, third time he's about to visit them, he has been establishing his own credible witness against Corinth. Each visit has built up his pile of evidence against them. And so he warns them strongly in chapter 13, verse 2. Have a look at verse 2. We'll read with me. I warn those who sinned before and all the others, and I warn them now while absent, as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again... I will not spare them. And take a moment and breathe that in. Paul is warning them that if they don't get that act together and repent, if they don't call each other to account, then they can expect discipline from Paul. Now, he doesn't say what he's going to do, but it's clearly going to be severe and it's going to be powerful. That's where he goes in, in, point, uh, in, the, in his next point in verses 3 and 4, chapter 13, verse 3 and 4, where Paul basically says that he will act in the power of Jesus. Now, there's some actually interesting parallelism going on in verses 3 and 4, which is quite beautiful and looks a bit like this. He's basically saying, if I can condense it down, that Jesus was weak when he was crucified and, and Paul is weak in Christ in union with him. Jesus now lives by the power of God and so too Paul lives with Christ. Jesus is powerful in dealing with his people, as he says at the beginning of verse 3. And at the end of verse 4, at bookend, Paul says that he will be powerful in dealing with Corinth. I'll leave that up there for another second for anyone who wants to take a picture. All right, time's up. If you missed it, come back to the live, the live stream later and have a look. The point is that when Paul confronts them, they will know for sure that Christ is speaking in and through him. At the beginning of verse 3, they wanted proof of that. They wanted proof that Jesus was speaking in and through Paul. 
Now they could either believe it through his written word and the testimony of his previous ministry with them, or they will see it again coming in power and discipline before them. Either way, there'll be indisputable proof that Paul is the genuine deal, that Jesus really is speaking through him. And then he calls on them to examine themselves in verses 5 and 6. Have a look at verse 5 and read with me again. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Well, do you not realize this about yourselves? That Christ Jesus is in you? Unless indeed you fail to meet the test? I hope you will find that we have not failed the test. Now there's a couple of ways that I think you can read these verses. See, on the back of his warning about his impending severe confrontation, you could read these words here in 13, 5 and 6 with a heaviness. It's a strong warning. He's turning the tables on them. You want proof? They want a proof that he was the real deal? All right. You prove yourselves to be the real deal. You test yourselves. You make sure that you're actually in the faith. Make sure that you really do believe. Because if not, well, bad news for you. So that's one way you could read it. Or I think you could actually also read this, these verses with a change of tone, which I think I prefer to read it in this way. After warning them, maybe he takes a deep breath and he softly says, look inwards. You're wanting proof that Christ is speaking in and through me? Well, look at yourselves. See if Jesus is actually working in you. See how he has changed you. Sure, there's sin in this church and you're a messed up group of people. But do you also realize at the same time that Jesus really is in you? I mean, the fact that you believe him, that you want to follow him, that you responded well to Titus' visit in my last letter. See, if they do this, if they look inwards and they realize that Christ is in them, no matter how imperfect they are at the moment, then that is proof that Jesus is speaking in and through Paul. It authenticates his ministry as the real deal. In verse 6, you notice that Paul says, I hope you will find that we have not failed the test. Well, if they look at themselves and they say, yeah, well, we passed the test, then it proves that Paul has not failed the test, that he's passed it as well. And if they pass the test in verse 5 and 6, then Paul prays in verse 7 that they'll respond by doing what is right, that they'll be obedient to his word. If Christ is in you, then, what will come, then it will come out in appropriate Christian conduct. Your beliefs will match your actions together. At the, at the end of seven, verse 7, Paul says that he wants them to do what is right, though we may have seemed to have failed, which is, I think, Paul's way of saying that it, it doesn't matter how he's perceived, whether he's a failure or a success. What matters to him is their spiritual condition. He cares much more about how they are going spiritually than about his own reputation. As for him, in, verses thir in, verses, in 13, verse 8 and 9, he, he'll continue being faithful. He'll keep speaking and teaching the truth and being glad in his weakness. For when he is weak, then they are strong. And ultimately, at the end of verse 9, it's their restoration he prays for. He wants them restored in right relationship with God and right relationship with him. So notice quickly two times in verse 7 and verse 9 that Paul says he's praying for them. He knows that if any change is going to happen in Corinth, then it will be through God being at work in them. And so Paul values prayer as the means by which he can affect change. 
For Corinth to be in right relationship with God is why Paul wrote. So in verse 10, we get almost, I think, the purpose statement of this whole letter. Why did Paul write 2 Corinthians? Verse 10, read it with me. For this reason, I write these things while I'm away from you, that when I come, I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. See, along with what Paul has said earlier, he now tells Corinth clearly, everything I have written to you has been for your building up. Now, sometimes that edification feels like actually being torn down, especially when you have to correct someone. When you're sitting opposite someone and you're, you have to tell them, I think you're in trouble, you're going in the wrong direction, and you've got, you've got to pull back. When you have to tell people that they are in sin and they have to repent, or that they are making unwise decisions and heading in the wrong direction, and then when the people turn and repent and start heading back in the wise direction, that's what makes it worth it. And that's what Paul has been doing. He has defended himself, he has corrected them, and he, as we saw last week, he ironically and sarcastically took them down a notch, but all for the sake of building them up. He wants them to embrace him and to be right with God in the gospel. And sometimes that's going to take the painful words for them to actually realize how far away they've drifted. He doesn't want to come again and have to bring the big stick of rebuke. When he comes, it will be in the power of Jesus. But will the Corinthians test themselves in the meantime? Will they discover a genuine faith and underneath all of that mess? And when they do... Will they repent and be obedient to Paul's words? Because if they do, it'll make his third visit among them a joyful one. In the final verses of this letter, we have Paul's final greetings. Uh, Usually these verses are skipped over, but take a moment to have a look at them again. Have a look at verse 11. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Now these are really interesting words, especially in the context of what Paul has expressed about his fears of their behavior in chapter 12, verse 20. See, their, motiva- their behavior, their motivations, and the result of all of that. So here in, in ver- 13, verses 11 to 14, right at the very end, it's almost as though he counters those fears with his hopes. In giving these final commands, he he lists out actions that he hopes he will find when he visits them. Instead of his fears coming true, he commands the opposite. So instead of quarreling and jealousy and anger and hostility that they're feeling towards each other, he tells them to rejoice. Instead of their words being used as slander and gossip, they are to use their words to comfort and agree with one another. Instead of pride motivating them, He wants them to aim for restoration. He wants their motivation to be restored, being restored to each other and to God. Instead of disorder as the result, he wants them to live in peace and greet each other with a holy kiss, which is an action of brotherly affection. Paul wanted them to repent and be grace-filled in how they live. And these final verses picture what he hopes to see in them, especially as he plans to visit them again soon. See, what is is this final section all about? 
Paul is planning to visit them again soon, and he hopes to find the Corinthians responding positively to him, embracing him and his ministry. He wants to find them repentant, turning away from their sin and self-consciously restored in the faith. He wants to be warmly welcomed rather than to come with severity. 2 Corinthians then is a massive letter. It is Paul at his most passionate and most pastoral The Corinthians had a massive challenge ahead of them. How would they respond? And as we close this sermon series, let's take some time to look at what this passage says to us today and what this letter as a whole is saying to us as well. So let's begin as we did last week. Let's first ask what this passage tells us about Paul and then what it might tell us about gospel ministers and gospel ministry. Now, as an overall general comment, I think it's pretty clear that Paul was thoroughly gospel-centered and gospel-driven. He did things out of the first priority of glorifying God and building up others in their knowledge and trust of Jesus Christ. That should be ultra clear, not just here in this letter and in this section, but throughout the whole book and through Paul's whole life. Gospel ministry then should reflect this same, this same single-eyed focus. Because as we have seen in Paul and in his ministry, the gospel is what truly empowers and what truly compels and what will ground you and give you hope so as to not lose heart in ministry and life. How we do church, what sort of pastors and leaders we have, should also be shaped by a gospel centrality. Let us be focused on keeping Jesus and growing in his likeness as the central pillar in our life of our life together as a church. Number two, here again in our passage, Paul repeats, that he refused to be a burden. He wanted to make clear to the Corinthians that he didn't want what was theirs. He wanted them. He didn't, I don't want your stuff. I want relationship with you. And he, would go, and he would do all that he could to ensure that nothing got in that way. He would gladly spend himself and be spent for their souls. Now this tells us that, firstly, I think gospel ministry is about people. Like gospel ministers and pastors in particular should not be motivated by financial gain, should not even be motivated by boosting their reputation. I'm thankful that our church has generously supported myself and my family and freed me from having to work in order to minister to our church members. But if money ever came to be an issue, would your pastors gladly step back and choose not to be a burden on our church? Would we step back and gladly continue to serve while working elsewhere to support ourselves, spending ourselves gladly for your souls? I cannot see your faces right now, and I wish I could. But in my mind's eye, I cast my faces over all of the members of our church, all of the faces we see regularly. And I can say humbly that I wouldn't hesitate to say yes. I do not mean to say this with pride or to boast in myself. But the, proud, but the profound affection that Paul had for his church is an affection that resonates deep within my own heart for the members here at SLE Church. And that's the way it should be. Gospel ministry is costly and, and a massive personal investment. And you'll only gladly spend yourself if the gospel has gripped your heart. So may that be the case for all our gospel ministers, whether pastors or lay leaders. 
May we gladly be spent in loving and serving those around us. Point number three. Application number three for Paul. Paul called the Corinthians to account for their sin. He pointed it out. He pointed out where they were in danger and called them to repent. A true gospel ministry will talk about sin and the weight of it. And in equal measure, it will point to the surpassing glory of the gospel where we find our forgiveness. True gospel ministry will call sinners to be accountable to themselves, to the church, and to God. This accountability is there because true gospel ministry is not focused just on calling out sin, but on growing holiness in God's people. Over the past few weeks, I read through the uh, testimonies of various people who had left false teaching prosperity gospel churches. And there was one common thread among those testimonies that I found very unsurprising. The common thread among all these testimonies is that when people left and they reflected on the things that they heard, on the things that they were taught, none of them could point to any preaching or teaching moment which spoke about sin. No preaching or teaching that promoted holiness. See, the gospel is only good news when we feel the weight of sin. It is therefore a loving thing to have our sin pointed out and then for us to be pointed back to the cross. True gospel ministry will speak about sin and the weight of it, so let us not shy away from these weighty truths. Number four, Paul prays for the Corinthians, especially for their restoration. Paul knew that it wasn't going to be his words alone that would spark change in Corinth. It was going to be the Holy Spirit softening their hearts and preparing them for transformation. Paul couldn't effect that change but he most certainly could pray for the Spirit to change their lives. So therefore, gospel ministry and ministers will value prayer. We pray, that, we pray because God is the one who works His Spirit in people to change and transform them. And I think that poses a big challenge for our church. See, last year, when we set out our church's vision and values, one of the core values that we placed right near the top was that we valued prayer. But I've noticed, maybe just in the groups that I lead, that prayer doesn't seem to be that valued. And I can see that, that when we, tend, when we organize prayer meetings, they seem to be the least well attended in the, in, the, in the semester schedules. Why is that? Let's recapture our value of prayer and pray like Paul did. So what does this passage say about Corinth? And what might it tell us about us? Well, it's pretty clear in this passage that they needed accountability for their sins. In love, Paul pointed it out and called them to repent. His visit would confirm whether or not they had listened to him, and he would hold them to account. If they listened and repented, then his visit would be a joyful one. If they didn't listen and failed to repent, then his visit would be severe. Now, when we think about accountability for ourselves... It often sounds pretty scary and pretty daunting. Being open before people, honest about your struggles. But as sinners who struggle with sin, we need it. We need that accountability to overcome that scariness of accountability. We need the encouragement of others, the prayer of others, and yes, sometimes the kick up the bum. 
But accountability pushes hard against our saving face culture. For most of the Asians in our church, we have grown up with a culture of saving face. We present before others a look that we have it all together. We put up walls before others that we're okay. We don't need help. We do it because maybe we're afraid of bringing shame upon ourselves and our families. When you put up a wall like that, you miss out on true, transparent gospel ministry to each other. You miss out on gospel grace that covers shame in our lives. Would you be willing to open up to some friends at church, invite them into your life to keep you accountable about the sins and the struggles of your life? Would you be open to sitting down with someone and asking them, when you look at me, what weaknesses do you see that I, that I am blind to? Help me to be accountable to that. Closely, if you're not willing to do that though, can I ask, what does your unwillingness reveal about your Christian faith? Now, closely tied to this is that the, the Corinthians were called to examine the, themselves, to test whether their faith was genuine. That if they looked inwards and were unsure, then that should have compelled them to trust the authentic gospel ministry that they were receiving from Paul. And if they looked inwards and were sure that they were Christians, then they should, then were compe- they should have been compelled then to stick with the authentic gospel ministry of Paul. To either just trust in what they're receiving or to stick with it. Now I know that some of us in our church need to be shaken up a bit here to realize that Christ may not actually be in you. That maybe you've been able to play Christian for a while. That has been easy to just kind of come to church. And even in this time, it's been even easier to kind of just, you know, take these live streams at your own time and convenience rather than seek to be a part of a church community that loves and builds each other up, that maybe you've been able to play Christian for a while, but if you were asked to test yourself, would you actually see a genuine trust in Jesus? Would you see genuine desire and motivation to change? Would you see and point to any particular transformation in your life? And this transformation being a move away from sin and selfishness towards holiness in Christ? Do you see a genuine desire to be connected with a church community, to love it, to build it up, and to encourage each other? That is, to be a part of a a genuine desire to be a part of authentic gospel ministry. If none of these things resonate with you, or if you have a very shaky vision of these things, then repent. Call on God to change your heart and restore your joy in Jesus. Do what you can to embrace gospel ministry in your life. On the other hand, I also know that some here need to be encouraged. That if you were to examine yourselves, you would find a genuine faith and trust. Not all of us need to be beaten over the head. I know that for a lot of you out there, there is real faith, and praise God with that. So stick with it, and even more so, 
Pour yourself into gospel ministry that serves and builds others up. Live out the final greeting that Paul gave Corinth. Keep rejoicing in Jesus. Aim to be restored to him and each other. Let's grow in comforting one another and being agreement, in agreement with each other and, and at peace. And while in our COVID-19 world giving each other a kiss is probably not a good idea, let's actually still keep growing our affection for each other. 2 Corinthians has been an epic letter. It is Paul that is most passionate, most pastoral, and sometimes most difficult to understand. So how does this book relate to our church? Towards the end of last year, as we were planning our preaching schedule for the year, I realized that as we were trying to hope to use this year to highlight our church's vision and prepare our church for what we call the 2025 vision, we were hoping to cast a five-year vision for our church to plant not just one but maybe two new churches by 2025. As we were thinking about that, as we were planning that, and obviously that, that plan to plant two churches has been changed for now, and that's okay. But what hasn't changed was the desire among the church leaders that we all, the regular members of our church, be on board and on the same page with how and why we do ministry. We wanted to preach through 2 Corinthians to see what authentic gospel ministry was according to Paul. To clarify it for some, to teach it freshly for others, for all of us to be on board with this. As we continue to think through the future, whatever that may be and whatever shape that may now take of what, of what we want for our church and what we want for our church plants, what do we want them to be built upon? And I hope we will recall the challenges and the lessons we've learned here in 2 Corinthians. Paul has laid out his ministry manifesto, so to speak, a ministry of authenticity and transparency, a ministry that is focused on the unseen realities over the seen temporary earthly cares, a ministry of costly loving service to each other, a ministry that discerns the true gospel and spots the fakes. See, if we have been captured by this, then let us embrace it together. Let us live out this kind of ministry in our churches. Now, this is not a guarantee that if we do this, our church plans will be a rip-roaring success, bringing revival wherever they are. But it will guarantee that the gospel is nurtured in the lives of those who attend and it will mean transformation and holiness will be brought to completion in our members and it will mean that the gospel will be faithfully taught and received for generations to come. And to that end, we need Paul's final words to be upon us as well. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 14. Read with me. The grace of our, the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.